0: Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, the man we're going to interview next Has a resume that is extraordinarily impressive because what I wanted to talk with you today is about a bunch of the different shifts that we see taking place in our culture because we know that the culture is increasingly hostile towards Christians and I wanted to explore that above the the anger of both sides with somebody who has written incredible things uh, on this topic and that is Oz Guinness now. Oz Guinness is actually a direct descendant of Arthur Guinness, uh, the Dublin brewer. He was born in China, and he was a witness to the Chinese Revolution of 1949 before moving to England in 1951, where he went to both uh, school and college. Now, in the late 1960s, and this is actually how I heard of him, he was a leader at Labri, which was this Christian community in Switzerland run by the Christian scholar Francis Schaeffer, who wrote How Now Then Shall We Live?, uh, he wrote a Christian manifesto, and he actually uh, helped found the pro life movement here in the United States, and especially uh, getting many, many Protestants involved in, in, in the political scene, especially in opposition to things like abortion. Francis Schaeffer's influence is, is with us still in many ways. And Oz Guinness was a close associate of his, and Oz Guinness actually. Uh, was the best man at Frankie Schaefer's wedding, Frankie Schaefer being, of course, Francis Schaefer's son. In 1984, Guinness went to the United States, and uh, he became quite a well-known intellectual. He was first a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and he was a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute. Uh, He was a lead draft of the Williamsburg Charter, and uh, he generally did a lot of really impressive things that led itself to a lot of, of the books that he worked on. And just just to list a couple of his his most recent books uh, that really talk about uh, Christianity and relating to modern culture, he wrote, A prophetic untimeliness, a challenge to the idol of relevance, unspeakable facing up to the challenge of evil. The case for civility and why our future depends on it. The last Christian on earth, uncover the enemy's plot to undermine the church. Fool's talk, recovering the art of Christian persuasion. Renaissance. The power of the gospel, however, dark the times, and so on and so forth. Now, many of these books are, are incredibly deep in their cultural analysis, as well as uh, in, in, in the solutions that they propose to dealing with these problems and to dealing with these impasses in our culture. So, earlier this week, I, uh, I, I called Oz Guinness, and we began to talk about some of the ways that Christians can move forward in, in a culture war that seems locked in combat. Uh, and it seems uh, for Christians uh, to be lost, and it seems for Christians often to be heading towards the point where, where Christians are legitimately getting persecuted. So here's my conversation with Oz Guinness, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Tell our
1: listeners a little bit uh, about what it was like to be part of the Labrie community, what Labrie was all about and what it was like to see this sort of countercultural Christian community developing at the same time when, when all these other counterculture movements were developing as well.
2: Well, the brief's very hard to describe today because the whole scene that gave rise to it has disappeared. On the one hand, the 60s, the emergence of the counterculture, people hitchhiking, backpacking, searching, wrestling. You could see a crossroads in Europe with, say, six hikers. And they'd be swapping books like Nietzsche or Hammond Hassett Siddhartha or C.S. Lewis. And people would say, hey, man, you should go up to, and they'd point to LeBrie. And so we always had 20, 30, 40% of people at LeBrie at any one time who were not Christians. So there was an intense fascination with questions about the meaning of life and so on. And all of that disappeared when the 1970s came and the me decade took over. But in its time, it was quite extraordinary.
1: So a lot of people nowadays, looking back, they look at sort of, you know, the, the hippie movement as as a profoundly countercultural and anti-Christian movement. But are you saying that, uh, that for this one shining moment, people actually were looking for honest answers to their questions?
2: Oh, absolutely. And while people at the time were fascinated with some of the very obvious graphic and immediate things, such as... You said the hippies or, say, drug, sex, rock and roll. The real influence of the 1960s is only now beginning to be really understood, and that's in terms of the seeds of the sexual revolution or the seeds of postmodernism. And all of those were sown in the 60s, but they're having their real impact, the harvest of them, now in the early 21st century. Well, and this is one of
1: the reasons that uh, the legacy of Doctor Francis Schaeffer and his, his wife Edith are so interesting. Because although you know the '60s, '70s, and '80s were, were a very particular time, and a lot of things don't translate over well, it's hard not to look at whatever happened to the human race and uh, you know, his, his various projects with Doctor Everett C. Coop as a little bit prescient when you look at what's happening now. Uh, we have to recognize that postmodernism was almost fully complete. I had somebody ask me the other day, um, if people view these Planned Parenthood videos and it doesn't impact their heart, what will? And That's that's a very good question. So what do you think the legacy of of Dr. Francis Schaeffer was in terms of waking people up to those issues that are still affecting us today?
2: Well, it's amazing how quickly the generation passes and the generation arises that, in the biblical language, doesn't know Pharaoh or doesn't know Moses. Mm -hmm. And you can see that many people have never heard of Francis Schaeffer today. But for me, the heart of what he did was he took the Lord passionately seriously. He took people passionately seriously, and he took truth passionately seriously. And that triple combination is something we need today. Now, if there's a weakness of it, Le Brie was very, very strong in the history of ideas, the significance of ideas. Ideas have consequences, as Richard Weaver said. Mm-hmm. It, was less, it was less understanding of how modernity, in terms of its structures and institutions, was equally powerful. So I think the Church has been weakened, on the one hand, by a serious assault from, say, progressive secularism, but on the other hand, it's been weakened by its failure to prevail over the institutions of modernity, and you need to put in a wider picture.
1: Institutions of modernity. Uh, what what sorts of institutions are you referring to?
2: Well, simple things like the impact of... Uh, we talk about, say, relativism. Mm-hmm. That's a matter of ideas. We didn't talk at the breeze so much of what you, what's called pluralization, the explosion of choice and change at every level, the idea that everyone is now everywhere. Which is behind, of course, the whole current religion and politics debate. So you can see that you can analyze things from the, from the vantage point of the history of ideas. You've also got to analyze things from the vantage point of cultural analysis, so what's technically known as the sociology of knowledge. So a thing something like consumerism that's not a philosophy, but it's just as powerful in its impact as any philosophy.
1: Now, what's what's interesting is you've written uh, very fondly of your experiences at Lebrie, but you've also written a quite in-depth analysis about the route that uh, particularly Dr. Schaefer took later on in his life in terms of um, so-called helping to found Uh, the religious right and this is an interesting question particularly now because the discussion about how politics and religion interact of course is is one with immediate ramifications when we when we talk about a question like that right? there's a clerk named Kim Davis sitting in a jail cell right now um, and many people are arguing about whether or not she should be sitting there but uh, she is I think a perfect microcosmic example of how the power of the state and, and and belief in the gospel have collided And you have said before that you felt that Francis Schaeffer's political involvement was somewhat of a mistake and has tainted his legacy.
2: Well, many people, and certainly I, think there were really three parts of Schaeffer's life. He was basically a fundamentalist in the early days, and he reverted to that later on. Whether you ascribe it to cancer or the effects of fighting on the religious right, uh, leave you to judge. But in the middle period, he was incredibly generous. And many of us were were, were products and grateful products of that middle period when Uh he was extraordinarily generous. So I'm not a fan of the religious right. On the one hand, it put too much uh, weight on politics. Uh You know, the old saying that the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. So he was right to fight back, in quotes. But I think the religious right fought back in the wrong way, trusting politics to do more than politics can do. On the other hand, many of those who followed him, they essentially did the Lord's work in the world's way. And that was a disaster, too. For example, demonizing and stereotyping their enemies. And for several reasons like that, there's been a huge backlash, certainly in America, in the U.S., against the Christian right. And I think part of it deservedly so. So we've got to figure out now how to engage well in public life and part of that challenge is to have a constructive vision of what a civil public square should be at the present moment.
1: Mhm. Well, and that's sort of interesting. I've said I, I've said for some time that one of the reasons radical feminism and the gay liberation movement managed to be so extraordinarily su- successful in their overreach was simply because uh, many aspect many facets of the Christian church were were not dealing with what could legitimately be called homophobia or misogyny on their own terms and thus we had these solutions forced on us from the outside because of course the correct answer to misogyny isn't feminism it's a, it's a proper application of the gospel but at the same time uh, we have articles like one came out in Atlantic recently about uh, you know a, a gay man coming out at Liberty University and and even he said that people were treated very well there. So when we say the Christian right, we, we do have to be somewhat specific. Are we f- referring to, you know, the empire of Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson or 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 Dr. James Dobson? Like, what are we referring to when we say the, the
0: religious right?
2: Well, it, it was a sort of catch-all phrase to include all of the above at certain moments, but there's no question. And, of course, many grassroots things, and often it was thought to be represented by the real extremes like Pastor Fred Phelps and so right. on, Fred Phelps, which was most unfortunate. So I'm not attacking any specific individuals. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that, generally speaking, the Christian right put more eggs in the basket of politics than it should have done. In other words, get our people in and all be well. So you take, say, the second Bush administration. You never had so many evangelicals in high office. The president, the secretary of state, two attorney generals, the uh, speaker of the house, the minority. And you go on down the line, the majority leader in the Senate. They were all evangelicals. But to a person, sadly, they were accused later of being rather inept. And one of them nearly went to jail for being corrupt. You know, we've got our people in. But that isn't the point. You've got to do something much deeper than that in changing culture. And I think where we are now is much wiser.
1: Well, and, and and of course, law is downstream from culture, and and the moral majority more or less collapsed when uh, when Bill Clinton left office with with huge approval ratings, and I think Ralph Reed and and other members of the religious right were forced to recognize that the moral majority they had vaunted for so many years did in fact not exist. But when you say we're in, we're in a in a better position now, I've recently been reading your book Renaissance. Uh, the power of the gospel, however dark the times. And I'm interested to see what you think of this present cultural moment, because you make some fascinating insights as to how the church should react to these times. But how does that practically translate over, for example, into our response to a clerk going to jail for refusing to issue marriage licenses to to a gay couple, for example?
2: Well, I think that issue, rather unfortunately, has hogged the limelight. The real issue on principle is how you accommodate the recent Supreme Court decision with the fundamental human right of freedom of conscience uh-huh. and um, that's what needs to be worked out and at the moment many in the progressive liberal side have become highly illiberal in saying that all assertions of freedom of conscience are partisan and political and really a cover for homophobia well that is disastrous not just to Christians, but to human rights in general. And that's the problem where progressive liberalism has come. It's become highly illiberal. Uh, and the Kim Davis incident has rather obscured the whole issue. Right. And personally, I'm with those who think she should have just honorably resigned with a very clear statement of why, rather than refusing to follow through and do the law. Christians are supporters of law. Right. And when you have a bad, bad law like the Dred Scott case or whatever, you don't refuse to obey the law, you change the law. We've got to do that. But her case, and I understand why the are Christians now are in jail because of their stance on freedom of conscience, but it's actually partly obscuring the real principle issue at stake.
1: But when you say change the law, then it seems like you're saying Christians should be quite actively involved in politics.
2: Of course, yeah, of course, but in culture right across the board, including prayer. Uh-huh. And that is just as political as anything. We, there are many things in our culture which we know that by our human efforts, we simply cannot change by ourselves. And only God can change, and that used to be a, a simple evangelical understanding. Uh-huh. At certain points, you need to pray for revival. Mm -hmm. And if ever we're in such a situation, it's the same today. But much of evangelicalism is heavily secularized and has lost any working reliance on the supernatural and on revival.
1: Well, it's interesting because sort of in this cultural moment, and and perhaps uh, Kim Davis has obscured things, or, or perhaps she's provided us a microcosm through which to look at this whole situation, but... One of the one of the things that I found interesting is is that I, I thoroughly enjoyed your analysis in Renaissance and a lot of the writings that you've done on this. Uh, precisely for that reason, the the idea that that the physical and the metaphysical are equally as real and need to be equally considered when we're having discussions like this is something I think that a lot of people have have forgotten. But when we're talking about um, resistance to even unjust laws, you know, Francis Schaeffer probably is one of his most famous books. Um, so that's how now then shall we live was, was the Christian manifesto and it seems like uh, his ideas may sort of experience a resurgence among Christians who are who are casting a vote for what to do in this situation and I do think that uh, one of one of the things that a lot of Christian leaders are, are, are going to be doing in, the, in in the coming days is trying to answer the question of what are Christians to do when the system no longer works for them in fact actively works against them when you know, San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom can issue gay marriage licenses against the law, but nothing happens to him, and a clerk does it, and she ends up in jail, things like this, right? Because um, democracies function on compromise, and it appears it appears that we're rapidly losing the ability to compromise in the space in which we can actually meet and, and, and form some sort of a reasonable accommodation. So how do you think Christian leaders are going to respond to this in the days ahead?
2: Well, I think what we're missing is a chance to go forward. In other words, what's the stake? You're exactly right. What's at stake is the attempted completion of the takeover by progressive secularism of the Jewish and Christian faith as the working faith, the defining faith of the West. And after centuries of secularism, some century of secularization, and uh, 50 or so years of separationism, We've arrived at a statism—you notice I use four Mm -hmm. S-words there—and they're trying to drive faith from public life. But rather than try and reassert the old Christian consensus, that's gone. The missing factor worldwide is pluralization. Everyone is now everywhere. Whatever situation we go forward to has to take that into account. And as far as I know, there is no alternative to the vision— of a civil public square where you have religious freedom for everybody, secularists included, certainly Christians, and we work out what it means to live with that. Now, the liberals are against it, but at the moment so also are many of the religious right, and Mm -hmm. that's absolutely disastrous. We've got to go forward with a constructive vision for humanity or we'll be in the situation you're describing, and it'll be a fight to the death
1: right well and with the way the united states and to some degree canada looks but especially in the united states because i think that um when america does something they do it with you know checkered flags waving they they do it much faster than we do here and we're seeing that with with the gay marriage debate things that took us 10 years to get around to uh, it took weeks in the us and reasonable accommodation seems to be virtually impossible and the and the polarization of these sides are are very much continuing but I, I see I have both um, sides of the media sort of streaming through my social media feed. So I see CNN, Salon, um, Slate Magazine, and all these places are literally already putting forward the idea that religious liberty does not in fact exist, whereas Christians are, are declaring uh, Kim Davis the, the new Rosa Parks. Where do you find a middle ground in which to pursue your solution in
2: all this? Well, you've got to go back into history, because what's at stake in what you're saying now is the entire human rights revolution. And liberalism is literally cutting off the branch on which you're sitting. Right. And if they realize what they're doing, this is one of the most highly illiberal periods. And so-called progressive liberalism is nowhere near the 19th century liberalism of people like John Stuart Mill. So Christians rightly understood we are now the champions of genuine freedom. And we've got to broaden the debate. Now, the fact is, if we look at religious freedom, the first mention ever was Tertullian. The second important one was Lactantius. And then, sadly, after the horrible predictions of the Catholic centuries, you have people like Roger Williams and so on. In other words, we've got to go right back over the importance of human rights and, and really make an articulate championship of human rights once again. This is not something... It's homophobia and a cover for it or whatever. And we, we, for the liberals' sake, we've got to stand against this illiberalism.
1: And what sort of success do you, do you see that having? You live in D.C., you live in the Heart of the Beast, you've written quite extensively <laughs> on this, and, and you lived through the time with Francis Schaeffer. You would, you would seem to be uniquely positioned to to sort of understand how these things
2: are working itself out. Well, I don't think that on this sort of level Schaefer's much of a help because he's appealed, well put it this way, he, he's demonized by the left for understandable reasons. Mm-hmm. I was once introduced at Columbia University by the president who went out of his way to underscore, I was quoted disciple of Francis Schaefer, and by that he clearly meant to box me. And at the end he came up, shook my hands and said, I'm sorry to introduced you the way you did. I see your position is quite different. In other words, Schaefer today demonized by the left, lionized by the extreme right. He's appealing to the frustrated and the angry, and that's very dangerous. Now, I understand why he did that in his period, but we should be the champions of a way forward constructively. I don't think there's a better way in history so far than what Madison called the true remedy. My books, like The Global Public Square, are frankly ignored, but I don't know another simple way forward for the world. And if this is right, we've got to stand for some of these things and not get fearful, alarmist, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Right. Well, it's, it's interesting uh, the, the Francis Schaefer being demonized by the left, I spoke with some time ago on my radio show, I, I actually spoke with, with Frank Schaefer, who I read your review of his book, so I know you're familiar with him, um, and I kind of confronted with him on, on a few of the things in his book. I, I, I felt that the, its greatest fault was it was so well-written because a lot of people would read it. And uh, I kind of asked him about the sort of vaguely patricidal tone of, of the book, etc. And it, it was quite interesting because he, he the interview was with him was quite schizophrenic in terms of he would flip from saying wonderful things about his father and their closeness to borderline uh, unhinged things about his father's position in the Christian right. And, you know, he goes on TV all the time to call Christians the village idiots and things like that. But when confronted in an interview, uh, he's quite different. So do you think that he's perhaps had a hand in the in the demonization of his father? Because he's almost used his father's position uh, and his position as the son uh, to gain credibility on the left, which is why he gets interviews with people like Rachel Maddow
2: quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think he's out in the wilderness now with his new views of atheistic religion. I don't take him too seriously in his current position. And members of the family who love Francis Schaefer and others, they just roll their eyes. I I frankly ignore Frankie's... uh, But I think what happened to Schaefer would have happened anyway. Quite apart from Frankie, he's just cemented it somewhat. No, his is a sad, sad story.
1: What do you think the difference then is between the Christian community of the 1980s, which felt um, sort of triumphalist with with the election of Reagan twice, but then uh, still uh, succumbed to the frustration of the Operation Rescue days, where you know 75,000 Christians were arrested in front of abortion clinics, uh, to through the moral majority of the Clinton years to now? And how has this sort of progressed? Because there's a lot of talk of civil civil disobedience all over again, which is why uh, I think that a resurgence of of a lot of Schaeffer's work is, is is not out of the question, because if they cast around for somebody who has written on the way forward in dark times, a lot of people are, are going to gravitate towards his
2: work. Yeah, but I think you have a much better ideas coming out, say, Robert George of Princeton, and things like that, but I'm, I'm much, much more constructive. Now, you're right in saying the religious right was triumphalist, you know, the early, it was actually not the 80s, but the 70s. If you go back to, you know, the the founders in the 70s, Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye and so on, the sleeping majority has woken up and can seize the levers of power and turn it around. It was incredibly confident, and, of course, that failed. Now, again, you can't do it through politics alone. But the seriousness of a, a long engagement through the cultural institutions, the so-called, that's what the left did. That's what the gays did, a long march with the institutions. And we've got to be prepared for the same thing, you know, in the arts and in law and in a hundred other areas, really having the salt and light permeate. And that's a much longer-term thing and much less dramatic.
1: But in, in the Christian attempt to impact culture, and this was something that Schaefer, at his best struggled with, because Schaefer, of course, was mm-hmm. a great admirer of art and the history of art and pointed out how art could glorify God. But uh, especially American Christianity, to a large degree, has succumbed to this sort of uh, consumerist habit of attaching the word Christian in front of something, and then often making quite a dreadful product. With you know Christian films, for example, and 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 Christian uh, rock and roll music, which which wasn't wasn't particularly commercially successful, as opposed to just creating beautiful art, but doing it to to the honor and glory of God. So, how do Christians manage to? Uh, extricate themselves from the way they currently do things to create a product that other people will be attracted to and their message will shine through
2: well it takes time and part of why it takes time is you have to learn from the bad mistakes but you can see say in film how far we've come from the incredibly well-meaning but rather saccharine Billy Graham films for example I love Billy Graham but not many of his films And you can see some of the best of Christian films today are light years from that. It'll take time, but I think we've got to, you know, just keep on in the same direction. No, put it another way, I'm actually writing about these things now, a companion piece to Renaissance. In a way, you know, Arnold Toynbee talked about challenge and response. I tried to write the response before the challenge. In other words, we trust in the power of the gospel, however dark the times, that's Renaissance, I'm now writing the other one, trying to describe the real scale of the challenge we're facing, which is much, much bigger than many Christians realize. It's not just a matter of politics. Uh, I should be finished in the next couple of weeks, but it won't be out till next year.
1: So when you talk about this year's scale, in Renaissance you discuss three main threats that are that are facing which was is islamism from the middle east uh... totalitarian philosophy of the illiberal liberals and then the self-destructive cultural chaos of the west's own chosen ideas and lifestyles And that last one there i'm quoting directly so you say there's these three threats uh... that are facing the christian community and when you're talking about the scale then uh, uh, what do you mean by the sheer scale are you just referring to these three ideas or you've expanded on this even further
2: no, no, expanded much further on the whole notion of modernity and what we're up against in some of the features of modernity. But, you know, just take, say, the secularism, which you mentioned, I mentioned. Much of it, we're dealing with stick figures. You know, people think that with a book countering Richard Dawkins, you win. Right. Now, the simple fact is, on two levels, we've got to face the uncomfortable fact that much of modern secularism is the bastard son of the church. You know, if you go back to the Greeks and the Romans, and even just before the Renaissance, there were atheists, or as always atheists. What made them aggressive, militant? And Edmund Burke discusses the rise of this way back when. What made them is their reactions to us. And you can see that generally with secularism, as well as individual secularists like, say, Christopher Hitchens' own story, or Bertrand Russell's own story. Mm-hmm. We've helped to produce the militancy of those who hate us as secularists. But not only that, they are the essential partners we can't avoid. Uh, we were talking earlier about the civil public square. Right. Christians and secularists are two essential partners. We're highly unlikely partners. But unless we forge a co-belligerence with them, in the name of freedom for everybody, uh, the Western world's finished. And so we've got to see them not just as stick-figure enemies or new atheists only. We've got to see them as potential partners. We've got to win to discuss what it means to live freely with our deep differences, with justice and order and so on. We've got to have a completely new view of some of these things.
1: So bridging that divide would be difficult because there are new atheists who believe precisely that, like Ian Hersey Ali, for example, who uh, to the shock of many Christians, because her her faith as an atheist appeared more muscular than that of the Archbishop of Canterbury, actually advised that Christians proselytize Muslims. Because she said, although I'm an atheist, I recognize that my freedom is much safer in a society based on Christian principles than one based on Islamic ones. But with with people like Hitchens, who not consider him an atheist, but an anti-theist, and, and Richard Dawkins, who has, uh, has has devolved quite far in terms of saying sort of a lot of a lot of uh, crazy things, even though he's a very intelligent man, um,
2: how do you bridge the gap uh, with a lot of these people?
0: How do you get well, over the, de- the the de- new age? The
2: new atheists in that form, you know, are, are not the whole of atheism, and uh, I think they're on the way over the hill. Dawkins is a lonely man in Oxford, and many people view him as a fundamentalist atheist as an embarrassment to their cause. But equally, you know, we have people like, um, bless his heart, Pastor Fred Phelps is right. an embarrassment to the cause, Right. Um, and so on. Um, so I hope people don't see Christians as Pastor Phelps, and I wouldn't see atheism as all Richard Dawkins or... And so on. So there are, there are many more. You take someone like, this is quite a different discussion, but say the homosexualists, you've got Jonathan Rowe, or uh-huh. Andrew Sullivan. They are pro-gay activists who are very aware of the importance of freedom of conscience. And we've got to work with as co-belligerents with some of these people very carefully.
1: Right, interesting. Here's one other question on on uh, how robust Christians can resist cultural threats. Is there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, um, of, of of sort of shouting and, and threatening about about how Christians will react to these things. But on on the flip side of it, which is how I refer to you know John Oliver, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert have done a fantastic job of combining scathing humor and moral outrage. Um, and and Christians are are quite frankly terrified of a lot of these people we and we've entered this this generation where i i think one of the most powerful tools of the left is- is, is there wittier and funnier atheists like John Stewart and, and the, other, the other members of the late-night crew that also you know, regularly advocate for, for, for gay rights and the, uh, the, the, the transgender issue and, and things like that and, and proselytize for those issues quite successfully. If Christians can't even handle you know, the mockery of, of, of our culture, how are we going to be able to handle and, and withstand
2: the, the civil persecution that seems to be quite likely? Well, no, I, I agree with you totally on that one. you know. But we should first go back to our Lord. He told us to expect all sorts of, uh, of troubling things, including persecution and so on. And In fact, he says, woe is us if everyone thinks well of us. And we've had too much of a period of that. But thank God for the recovery. My, my new book out this summer is called Fool's Talk, which is a recovery of the subversive dynamic. Uh, I'm interested in persuasion, but of oh, things wow. like humor, comedy, and so on, and thank God for people he is not yet at that cultural province. Eric Metaxas is every bit as funny as Stephen Colbert and John Stewart. And yeah, so he's on. phenomenal,
1: yeah. And, yeah,
2: and, and so on, and we're recovering all these things. Thank God. We should start with a basic biblical teaching, have no fear. God is greater than all. God can be trusted in all situations, including, including our crazy one, and so we should go out without any fear with complete faith in God and just live His way.
1: Oh, that seems like a that seems like a great place to end. Thanks so much for
2: joining us. You are most welcome. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: that was Oz Guinness, Christian author and scholar. He was speaking to us from Washington D.C. Thank you so much for joining us for this program, and please join us again next week for for a very interesting program on the unfolding Canadian election and how Christians and how social conservatives should respond to that election. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you have a great weekend.